Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Political satirist Mark Russell once said that a consultant is a guy who knows 247 different ways to make love, but he doesn't know any women. Our guest, Dr. Madeline Liesblad, an assistant professor in the Department of Journalism and Strategic Media, might beg to differ. Her book, American Consultants and the Marketization of Television News in the United Kingdom, chronicles how a major American broadcast consulting firm changed the face of television news coverage across the pond in the 1990s. If you thought British television became less stuffy because of Monty Python, you're only partly correct. We'll find out why after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. A first-of-its-kind study led by MTSU's Dr. Elizabeth Barnes suggests that a difference in culture and beliefs between science instructors and their students may inadvertently lead to low acceptance of evolution among minority students, particularly black students, in biology. Barnes and Arizona State University researchers asked whether black and Hispanic students tended to reject evolution more than students from other racial, ethnic identities, and whether any differences could be explained by the fact they tend to be more religious. Christianity is popular among 65% of college biology students, but only 25% of the biologists who are teaching students. And for the hearing impaired, lip reading in a society full of mask wearers is practically impossible. However, the MTSU Speech Language Hearing Clinic refuses to let COVID-19 conquer their work. Since September, the staffers and student clinicians at the clinic on the first floor of the university's alumni memorial gym have worn clear plastic masks and face shields. Because of the pandemic, the clinic could not operate in the spring and summer. The staff spent the summer designing protocols for opening safely and hygienically for fall 2020. For the sake of establishing a comfortably mask-free rapport, clinicians and clients were outside and six feet apart for their first day together in September to more easily see each other's entire faces. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Madeline, welcome. Thank you for being our guest. Thanks for having me. How did Frank Magid and Associates become involved with television news in Britain? So Frank Magan and Associates, were, they're really big in the U.S. in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And then in um, 1986, they started work, working with Worldwide Television News. And Worldwide Television News also worked closely with ABC News. And ABC was a Maggot client. Maggot did a study for Worldwide Television News looking at their market possibility to move into the U.S. market. Worldwide Television News was primarily based in London at the time. And um, there wasn't, they didn't move ahead with that study because uh, Maggot found that, yeah, there's a market possibly, but there's really too many, too many uh, red flags for Worldwide Television News to move ahead. But there was a person on the Worldwide Television News board he was very involved with independent television news in the UK. And so Maggot was essentially brought on board because um, Sir Paul Fox had heard that Margaret Thatcher may be doing some changes in terms of independent television news in the UK. Independent television news at the time was kind of the commercial arm 
Um, it's not commercial as we know it today, but it was um, looked at as a commercial television site in, in the UK. With the, the BBC back in the day, you paid a tax on the television sets that you purchased. And so there was a considerable more governmental investment in television as a public service entity than as a uh, commercial enterprise, right? Yeah, and the BBC is still supported by taxes and fees. The way independent television news was set up, that, that came about in 1955, it was also really public service television. If you look at the governing documents of the BBC and independent television news, they were really similar. The only difference was that independent television was allowed to have advertising. What was the standard for television journalism that the BBC employed before American models were introduced into the market, if you will, to commercial competitors? So the BBC has fantastic reporters. Uh, the BBC had its own journalism school, probably still does, but it was very, it was kind of the basics of journalism, how to ask questions, um, how to write properly. It really wasn't all that great in terms of the performance aspect of television, because when you're on television, you're performing, right? It's not a theater performance, but it's still performing because you're alive on the air. It was kind of stuffy <laughs> before Maggot came. Um, it was... Um, very long-winded, so you would have politicians sometimes, they would have politicians on the air talking, giving sound bites for two, three, four minutes. Um, and so it was, it was very different from what we're used to here in the States. It's uh, reminded me of uh, somebody actually reading the newspaper to you, although, which is not to disparage those journalists, they were doing their own original reporting, but uh, the sort of stentorian tones that came at you through the box were uh, uh, very formal. Yeah, and, and, the, and UK television has this tradition of not inserting personality in, into their TV broadcasting, right? So um, they didn't have the anchors being shown on air for, the long, for a very long time. And then when they first showed the anchors on air, they're called presenters in the UK, they didn't identify them. You know, they try to do everything that they could not to insert personality into television news. And so, you know, the way we do things here are completely different from the way that they used to do it there. Yeah, as a matter of fact, you could make the argument that the reason Walter Cronkite was as popular as he was is that CBS News became the Tiffany News Department in the early days of television is because people trusted the man who was delivering it. Uh, uh, the same can be said to a, a certain degree also about Huntley and Brinkley on the competing uh, NBC. But the American model changed a lot itself over the decades. It started out like somewhat stiff in the days of John Cameron Swayze, with a few exceptions like David Brinkley's dry wit. I think there was also a certain amount of uh, stuffiness in the early days of American television network news, was there not? Oh yeah, definitely. It had a uh, medium of record type structure. So it was essentially, it was print journalism, just broadcasted, right? And that really didn't change until the 1960s when we had Eyewitness News, which was the first format for television. And that's when things changed to become a little more accessible, a little more friendly 
We'll take a break right here. We'll be back in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. The Middle East Center at MTSU seeks to promote greater understanding of the politics, history, and culture of this vitally important region of the world. Its mission includes the promotion of outreach programs and faculty research. The center sponsors lectures by Middle East experts and scholarly exchanges. We're especially pleased to offer a new interdisciplinary minor in Middle East studies with courses in Arabic and Hebrew. This is Dr. Alan Hibbard, Center Director. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. The Middle Tennessee State University Women's Studies Research Series features compelling monthly talks on gender-related topics by faculty and graduate students. The series offers a chance to learn about research in progress and to chat with faculty in an informal setting. All lectures are free and open to the public and are held on the MTSU campus. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. The book is called American Consultants and the Marketization of Television News in the United Kingdom, and it chronicles the way that uh, Frank Maggot's consulting firm uh, changed television news in Great Britain in the 1990s. The author is Dr. Madeline Liesblatt, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Journalism and Strategic Media. Uh, the American model still gets a lot of flack, especially the network Nightly News. Some people say it's written for sixth graders. Others hate the fact that the networks feel compelled to fill the time with good news stories designed to be uplifting instead of investigative journalism. Since some Americans still can't stand it, how did the Brits take to it? Uh, well, Maggot had to kind of work a little bit undercover, right? Because they're Americans, um, especially for the um, ITV auction, basically where the UK government auctioned off broadcasting licenses for the ITV stations it would have been deadly if someone would have found out that Maggot was working for them. Um, in fact, at one point when it came out that they were working with independent television news, which is kind of what we would consider network level in the US, um, but that's not how the Brits would explain it. When it came out that, that Maggot was working with them, Maggot was actually let go. Um, there was this acute fear of the dumbing down of television. But at the same time, you have journalists that understand that the environment was becoming more competitive. You had cable, you had Sky News coming on board. And so they had to do something to be competitive, right? And they, they wanted to tell a good story. And so it's kind of interesting because in many ways, you have the consultants and the journalists kind of, their goals were aligning, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you had journalists eager to learn how to do things better. You also have technology increasing and becoming better. And so going live became a kind of a, it became part of the news program and that really hadn't been used before. So a lot of new elements because of technology, a lot of competitiveness and, and they understood they had to change. How did you conduct your research into this sort of revolution in British TV news? So I was looking for a dissertation topic and I have a background in television news and local television news. And so um, when I was talking to my advisor at the time, he had done a lot of uh, research into Maggot and I wasn't too thrilled about the topic, to be honest with you. One, because consultants have a really bad rap, right? When they come into TV station, they usually have recommendations that sometimes that means someone's let go or their duties change. And so they don't, they aren't necessarily well liked. And I'm from Europe. 
And so there's this whole Americanization concept, and here's the big bad America, if you will, um, coming to change the world, right? So I was a little hesitant about the topic, but I'm also a historian, and the chance to dig into archives that no one had been in before was fantastic. I was there for a week. They said, here, from eight to five, come and go as you want in our archives. Here's a copier. Uh, you can scan whatever you want. No restrictions, nothing. I mean, that was pretty phenomenal. Seeing what I was seeing in the archives and then doing the interviews, not only with MAGID personnel, but actually I interviewed more journalists than MAGID people. And seeing how, how they worked together, if you will, and how their goals kind of aligned. Some of the best parts for me was just finding little nuggets. And so it's just simple stuff. I grew up with weather that was kind of smiling characters, you know, smiling suns and, and, and things like that. And Maggot came in and said, you know, your graphic is not bad, but if you just add town names, because they're, you know, BBC graphics didn't have town names uh, on the weather maps. If you just do something simple as that, it becomes more easily understandable. Um, and so it was just kind of finding these things that no, these stories that no one had told before that just made it worthwhile for me. A couple of times I went back to my advisor, I said, this is what I'm seeing and I'm a little concerned <laughs> because it really came down to storytelling. You know, journalists and Maggot wanted the storytelling to be easier to understand, better tailored to television. And I was concerned that I was seeing stuff because I wanted to see it, right? Because I'm a journalist. And so a lot of times I had to like double check myself and triple check and, and, and make sure that I was really going in the right direction with, with what I was seeing. What was Magid's research methodology like in assessing TV networks and stations? Did they depend upon metrics as much as television networks and stations do now? So Magid is, it really started out as a research company. And so they didn't get into television until the 1970s. When they went out in the UK, audience research had been done. So the BBC had audience research, but it wasn't, it wasn't as in-depth as Maggot. No one had really asked the tough questions that Maggot asks, right? Maggot was really concerned about this being in the UK. It's different from the US. So what kind of questions and how do we phrase our questions um, to make ourselves understood? And a lot of the concepts that Maggot was asking about, the audience in the UK hadn't seen. And so they had to show pictures, they had to describe things. And so initially what they did is they went out on, on a couple of pre-research pre visits to talk to people. They used um, UK research companies. They structured the research, but they actually used um, British researchers to do the actual going to homes and talking to people um, because they wanted to make sure that them being an American company didn't taint things. And they had to structure it a little bit different than what they would, were doing in the U.S. at the same time. So in the U.S. at that time, they did a lot of television um, and a lot of telephone research, but that didn't really work in the U.K., they felt that they really, what worked better was the in-home visits. And so in markets, they would visit a thousand homes, you know, to talk to people. And then eventually um, they started using phones in, in the UK as well. But it was really, it was really different. And they were really, it was kind of interesting to see how concerned they were 
making sure that the language is correct um, and that they ask the right questions. Um, and, and the setup was, was different. And did the UK at that time have anything equivalent to our Nielsen ratings? Yeah, they did. They did. Had, they had something called, uh, well, they have something called BARB. You have ratings and they had the people meters um, in the 1990s. Here come these Americans and they've got their own way of doing things. But it, it, it wasn't all just people crunching numbers. The in-home visits lent sort of a personal touch to it. People were excited to talk about television because no one had really done that type of in-depth research before. They hadn't asked them before. And so television was really whatever management thought people wanted to see. And this was the first time that the audience uh, thoughts and what the audience wanted to see was really brought into television news in the UK. And so you're hearing from people what types of stories that they want to see. Um, and that hadn't really been done before. We'll take another break right here and we'll be right back. This is MTSU on the record. Specialized training in forensic science prepares tomorrow's professionals through the Forensic Institute for Research and Education, or FIRE. The Forensic Anthropology Search and Recovery Team assists law enforcement with skeletal remains at crime scenes. Legendary forensic scientists provide lectures free to the public, and high school students work realistic crime scenes each summer at our CSI MTSU camp. I'm Dr. Hugh Berryman, Director of FIRE. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. Expanding Your Horizons is an annual hands-on science and math conference for middle and high school girls. EYH enables girls to investigate careers in science and math and to talk with female leaders in those fields that are so essential to our nation's future. EYH also provides the girls with fun hands-on activities and allows them to meet girls with similar interests. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte-Gross, EYH Director. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. Our guest is Dr. Madeline Leesblad. She's an assistant professor in the School of Journalism and Strategic Media and author of American Consultants and the Marketization of Television News in the United Kingdom. Were there any cultural differences to which Maggot had to acquiesce or at least be sensitive since the audiences for British and American television news were different? There's still, even today, things are a little different. When you look at UK television in the 1990s, it was kind of like US television in the 1960s before we had that big transformation, the big switch to the, the newscast we have today. And so Maggot really couldn't go from what the UK was having at the time to where the US was, because that was too big of a leap. So if we're looking at things like uh, sound bites, sometimes they had a minute worth of a sound bite, sometimes two, sometimes three, sometimes four. Um, it wasn't really what the story warranted. It was more like we have some time to fill and we can just let this person talk. And so Maggot came in and said, no, you need to pick something out of that sound bite that adds to the story. And so sound bites in the UK, if there are 15 seconds, that was super short, right? Because you're going from these really long sound bites. And the same with packages. You could have packages. One reporter told me, he said, well, if I wanted five minutes for a package, I could have five minutes. Well, five minute package is like unheard of here. Today, a package is like a minute, two minutes if you're absolutely lucky. And so packages became shorter it was more important like what went into the package versus how long the package was. And so you still have longer packages today than you have in the US. You still have longer sound bites. And so, but that 
that's what fit the UK market. Did these changes show up as much in the editing room as they did in the way that a reporter would say do a stand-up? Frank Magan was the inventor of Action News. And Action News had a very rapid fire pace. So you're talking three stories a minute, right? You're talking sound bites that are eight to 10 seconds, right? It wasn't that they wanted to come in and just cut. It was more about what can make an impact? What part of this interview or the soundbite really makes an impact? Technology was changing rapidly in the 1990s. So everything became easier. You could go live from places you hadn't been live from before. All of a sudden, graphics changed, graphics improved. Um, it was snazzier graphics. Um, there's one point where they go, you know, your graphics are fantastic, but you're overshadowing what you're trying to say. And so they were actually telling them to move back a little bit with the graphics. But yeah, everything became tighter and easier to do, right? So that's also a part of improving television news. But at the same time, Maggot kept some kind of credibility with the Brits by saying, we're not just trying to help you put forth some sort of a showbiz performance here. We're still talking about telling the public what happened, whether it's a wreck, whether it's a political story, whether it's an education story. Uh, we're just trying to enhance the presentation quality. In some markets, they wanted more education stories, for example. Some markets wanted political stories. Some markets didn't. Um, and so there were local adjustments, too, that were made. Magid did see a lot of similarities, though. Why did Magid see this as something they wanted to take on instead of some other consulting agency? Magid was lucky that they were the first ones into the UK, and so they kind of they got a grip on the market. Basically, what happened in the 1990s was the US market was saturated, right? There's only so many stations, and pretty much every station had a consultant. And so they went from the US, they expanded to, into um, Canada. Uh, then Europe opened up, and obviously, hey, more money, right? More business, right? At one point, um, Europe was one of the most profitable parts of Frank Megan and Associates. So it was really a business decision. We're talking also about political changes that would open up uh, commercial opportunities, such as the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the demise of the Soviet Union, uh, being able to venture into Eastern Europe and, and pitch this new approach to television news when you were talking about countries that previously had had uh, government, not only government-run news, but government putting their thumb on the scale of uh, journalistic fairness. So I grew up in Sweden. We had two channels, channel one, channel two, state-owned or, or government-run. Um, and in the 1990s, actually in the 1980s, it started in the 1990s, you had privatization in Europe. So you had this kind of selling off of state assets. And it's really the only reason that Maggot got a foot in the door in the UK, because there's this rumbling that Margaret Thatcher was going to do something different with independent television news, whereas traditionally, you write a report, you get your broadcasting license for another 10 years. But the government saw that, you know, broadcasting licenses are worth some money, so we're going to open this up to an auction. Um, and you had other countries then that followed, because Great Britain is very well respected in Europe, right? So whatever the UK does, other European countries tend to follow. And 
you had all this privatization of state assets where they're selling off of things. All of a sudden you had new commercial television station that sprung up that were privately owned. Um, you had so much investment, not just in television, but in all sorts of media in Europe at that time, because it was opening up to market forces in a way that it hadn't been done before. What impact have the cable news networks and the 24-hour news cycle had on the changes that uh, MAGID helped bring about? Uh, have television journalists gone even further in that direction or with more time to play with, do they have more time to do different types of news programs? Like, you know, a longer package here, but then a program here where you have shorter packages, depending upon what they think will play best at different times of the day. Uh, if we're talking the UK, cable really didn't do all that well in the UK, especially initially, because with cable, you have to dig up streets and, th and things like that. Um, satellite broadcasting was a little bit easier. You put up a satellite dish, that's so easier. 24-hour news definitely changed, changed things in the UK. Sky News actually became a pretty good competitor, right? Even in Sweden, I watch Sky News um, sometimes, and Euronews. As far as the rest of the UK, BBC started having 24-hour news, but not until the late 1990s. And what 24-hour news has, has done, in a way, news has almost become this beast that you got to feed with stories, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you have different, different types of programs where you can talk about things and you can have different focuses. But it's really, it's really changed the game for a lot, of, a lot of media outlets. For local television, though, you still have what you always had to fill, right? Maybe you have more, or in some cases, you even have less news at the local level. Um, even at the network level, it really hasn't changed that much, except you have these additional channels that broadcast 24 hours. And there's, a, there's the pressure that comes to with technology that we have now, the immediacy, you got to go live um, and not just live on your station, but live on Facebook and, and through social media. Social media has changed um, television news. The book is called American Consultants and the Marketization of Television News in the United Kingdom. And it's authored by Dr. Madeline Liesblad, who's an assistant professor in the School of Journalism and Strategic Media. Thank you, Madeline, for being our guest today. Thanks for having me. We'll be right back. The MTSU Department of Art has the newest facility for visual arts in the state with approximately 50,000 square feet of space, including high-tech computers and computer-driven equipment for multimedia, graphic design, printmaking, sculpture, painting, and ceramics. We feature a visiting artist lecture program and an exhibition program that exposes students to work by national and international artists. To find out more, visit mtsunews.com. The Concrete Industry Management Program at MTSU fills the need for trained personnel who know concrete technology and techniques. Our alumni go into the marketplace grounded in basic math and science and able to promote products or services related to the industry. Our participation in the academic common market ensures talented students in other states a chance to enroll on an in-state tuition basis. This is Dr. Heather Brown, director of the program. To find out more information on this or other university programs, visit mtsunews.com. Stephanie Barrett has the middle moment. 
The College of Education's Elementary Clinical Practice or Student Teaching Program was recently named among the top in the country by the National Council on Teacher Quality. The program received an A score, one of only 33 of the over 1,100 schools evaluated to do so. Bobby Lucier, Executive Director of Professional Experiences at the college, credited collaboration with the university's school district partners for the achievement. Well, I think it's reflective of all the hard work that uh, the university, our school partners, um, our faculty, their faculty, and our students have committed to um, being the best future teachers that, you know, really producing good teachers for the future of our of our students in the classroom. It's not necessarily all about our students, but the students that they're going to be teaching in the classroom. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's where the focus needs to be. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.